numbers of ways we can escape from pain. One is by dissociating, tuning out. These kids tend to, a lot of them tend to be diagnosed with ADHD, not because they've inherited the disease, but because they're so sensitive and when there was stress around them, they tuned out as a way of protecting themselves. That tuning out gets programmed into the brain. These kids also have more of a need to escape into behaviors that soothe the pain, such as internet and gaming and substances and so on. There are two things going on. We have to look at the stresses in the environment and we have to look at the sensitivity of each other. And sometimes parents, we all did the right things, but they don't get us how sensitive their child was. And how even the little things that didn't happen that should have happened would affected them. But that same sensitivity dynamic applies to so many kids. And, um, and it's challenging to know what to do with these sensitive kids because they react so much to whatever happens. Welcome to a very special episode of Hope Stream. If you are the parent to a child who struggles with substance use and has mental health challenges, this is your podcast and it's your own safe space to learn and connect so that you can start to make positive changes in your life and with your child. I'm your host, Brenda Zane, and I've been through the struggle of addiction and high-risk lifestyle with my own child so I can relate and all the work I do supports parents like you which you can learn more about at my website, brendazane.com. You're in for a real treat today. I got to sit down with Dr. Gabor Mate, the best-selling author of now five books published in over 30 languages to talk about book number five, which was released just this week, The Myth of Normal. Gabor is an internationally renowned speaker, highly sought after for his expertise on addiction, trauma, childhood development and the relationship between stress and illness. He's also co-developer of a therapeutic approach called Compassionate Inquiry, which is now studied by therapists, physicians, counselors, and others worldwide. In this conversation, Gabor and I talk about the true roots of the struggles our kids have, ranging from ADD and ADHD to ODD, which is Oppositional Defiance Disorder, and substance use, of course. We talk about what parents need to be aware of and how it can be really hard to look at ourselves as part of the overall healing that needs to happen. Gabber also shares about parental guilt. He talks about his own and what we all can do with that and shares three ways that parents can approach their kids when they're angry, oppositional, misusing substances, and rejecting the family. Spoiler alert, he only recommends one. I have to say this is a goldmine of information and perspective that you'll probably want to rewind and listen to a few times, so I'll let you get right to it. Please enjoy a beautiful and compassionate and very enlightening conversation with the one and only Gabor Mate. Thank you, Gabor Mate, for being with me today. This is such a treat to have you to spend some time. Uh, as I sit with you, I represent very scared parents, um, very confused parents. And so I appreciate you taking the time in this busy week and here to talk about your new book, The Myth of Normal. And I have to say that I'm also someone who's had the experience of having children and being very concerned about them. and their struggles, their challenges, their habits. And so um, I'm not only here as a physician and uh, somebody with some degree of expertise, but also somebody who's been through the same challenges myself. It is so terrifying. I think it's, um, it's something that no matter who you are, it just levels the playing field because we, yeah. we see our kids struggling, we see them hurting. And what, what I'm so excited to, to talk about with you is um, for a lot of us, and I'm, and I'm one who my oldest son um, struggled, we don't know what happened. And I remember, you know, before reading your books and, and really learning, I was so mystified. Like this child had this wonderful, perfect childhood, right? That's kind of our lens as a parent. Yeah. How could this have happened? And so I think that's true of a lot of parents who are just you know, beating their head against a wall saying, what is going on? And with fentanyl in the market now, we just, it takes everything to a, a new heightened level where we just want to immediately 
fix this. So um, looking forward to some of the dialogue on that. And in reading the book, I, I realized there's, you know, you have chapters on addiction, but there's just so much more that goes into it, which I found really helpful to sort of round out the story. A part of that is really just looking at ourselves and how we got to be where we are. Well, let me begin by saying that parents look at it from the lens of how much they love their kids, which is infinite. Yes. Then they wonder what the heck could have gone wrong. But there's a difference between what the parent feels and what the child experiences. Yes. And what the parent feels, the love and the devotion and the commitment that the parent experiences is not necessarily what the child receives because there's so many factors that can interfere with that loving intention getting through to the child. Yeah. So among the things that can get in the way are the parent's own unresolved traumas, the stresses in the parent's lives, the stresses in the parental relationship, the social conditions, the degree to which the parents are able to maintain or lose the primary intimate relationship with the child, whether the child gets caught up in their peer group or remains as the parent being the primary attachment figure. And we'll talk about that later, if mm -hmm. you like. And so for myself, um, I was in my 40s when I had to realize that my kids were struggling. My young kids were struggling. And I had to look for the reasons why. Yeah. And it wasn't to do with how much I loved them. Um, at any time, I would have thrown myself into a fire for the sake of my kids. But the problem was, they didn't need, they didn't need me to throw myself into a fire. Right. They needed me to be, be there as a non-stressed, emotionally available, attuned parent. And that I couldn't do because I was a workaholic physician myself. So if I may say, why was I a workaholic? Because there's an infant, there's a Jewish infant in Hungary in 1944-45. Through the stresses and traumas of my mother and the tragedy that was happening around us, I got the message that I wasn't wanted, which was never the intention of my mother. Right. But, but that's the download that I received. Now, if you're not wanted all your life, you're going to try and prove yourself to yourself how important you are and how how much you need people to want you. Well, one way to do that is to go to medical school. Right. So I go to medical school. Now everybody wants me all the time when they're being born, when they're dying and in between. And I'm addicted to that external valuation because I don't have the internal valuation. Now when I'm always working and when I'm kind of restless and alienated when I'm at home, what message do my kids get? They get the message that they're not wanted. That wasn't ever the case, but that's the message they received. Or when my wife and I are struggling in our relationship and the tension is thick and palpable in the house, as my son Daniel, who's my co-writer in this book, says in this book that when he was a child, the floor was never the floor. He used to have this nightmare of the floor disappearing. He never knew when the tension between Ray and I, my wife and I, to whom the book is dedicated, would get to the point of, of, of emotional stress. And for that sensitive child, that's like the floor disappearing. This is contrary, contrary to our intentions, contrary to our awareness. And it was only when we began to realize how much trauma we had carried into that relationship and unwittingly passed on to our kids that we began to understand our kids' behavior. Yeah. I'm so curious how you started to figure that out. So you, you know, were workaholic, you were um, I, in the um, realm of hungry ghosts, you talk about your CD purchasing. And um, I just wonder, how did you, how did that realization start to come to you? Were you doing your own work in therapy or what, what turned the light bulb on for you? Well, I think one of the biggest impetus we all have to examine our lives is the struggles of our children. So that alone was enough to set me on a quest to find out what's going on. Yeah. And we can look at children as sort of being independent and entities that stuff just happens to them uh, for who knows what reason, or we can actually understand that the human brain and the human child develops an interaction with the environment. So if we want to understand why a child is anxious or is diagnosed with ADHD or has got 
relational challenges or is a bully or is being being bullied. We really have to look at the, the environment. And as Robert Sapolsky, the great neuroscientist at Stanford says, we are affected by the environment as soon as we are in an environment, and that means already in the womb. Mm. Yeah. So, so given I was in a stressed marriage, my wife had significant emotional stresses when she was pregnant. That already affects the child's brain and the child's development. And in this society, a lot of women who are pregnant are highly stressed. So part of the impetus for me was just dealing with the, having to confront the unhappiness and struggles of my own children. But then, of course, there was my own stuff. There was in my 40s. I was a successful doctor. I was a newspaper columnist. I was respected, middle class. And I was unhappy. I was depressed. And I was in a marriage that had significant problems, despite the fact that we loved each other immensely. Right. I had to start looking at my own life for what happened to me here. And how did what happened to me get unwittingly transmitted to my children? Okay. And adding to that was, of course, as a physician, I began to notice these patterns in my patients that the Western medicine in which I was trained separates the individual from the environment, separates the mind from the body. Right. But in scientific terms, in actual scientific terms, you can't separate the mind from the body and you can't separate the individual from the environment. And I began to see that in families where there were challenges with the kids, there were also challenges with the parents, multi-generational challenges that didn't begin with any one parent and it wasn't anybody's fault. It was just kind of automatically transmitted from one generation to the next. So as a physician, I began to saw these patterns when I working with addicted clients, highly addicted clients, street dwelling, HIV ridden, hepatitis C challenged, heroin, cocaine addicts. I couldn't help but notice the trauma in their lives. So both my personal history and challenges, my children's problems and my medical work really drove me to look at the whole picture of how do people develop, what are their needs, what happens to undermine those needs, and what happens when those needs are undermined. Yeah. So it just, there is just that cycle, that continuing cycle, because when we don't realize what we're doing as parents, transmitting that to our kids, it's yeah. just going to keep rolling downhill, basically, um, is is what I saw. And, and really the themes that I pulled out of the book um, were really that just the unmet needs of kids that our society today is doing such a horrible job of, you know, supporting parents and, and just all of those factors. So I'd love to talk about those a little bit. And then I think for me as the mom of, of a child who struggled and the impact of that, the link between chronic stress and, and illness Mm -hmm. just got my heart going because I, I started to recognize in myself and all of the parents that I work with the impact when we are seeing our kids struggle and be in very dangerous situations and put themselves at risk. That alone is just eating away at our bodies. So there's just so many factors there. And there was a, a quote about ailing bodies and minds can be thought of as living alarms, which I just thought was... Yeah. So true. Um, and you saw that as a physician when you're seeing from sort of a air traffic control view, all of these, I'm sure you're seeing these trends happen. And it's so obvious, like now that I've read, you know, other books of yours, but this one too, it just seems so obvious, but it's not obvious when you're in it, no. when you're watching your child. And there's one factor I need to mention here which is the child's own temperament. Yeah. Th these kids who struggle tend to be very sensitive kids. Yeah. They're born very sensitive. That's their nature. They're genetically sensitive. Sensitive means, from the Latin word, sincere, to feel. They just feel more. Yes. And you get the same child with the same genes, and you've exposed them to an environment that's settled and grounded and nurturing. They just got the wonderful, creative, spontaneous, intuitive, um, artistic people, leaders and, and, and helpers. But you take that same sensitivity gene or genes, a child and dot with that, and you put them in an environment where they're stressed, because they feel more, they suffer more. Yeah. 
Now, addictions, in my view, are not inherited diseases. In fact, they're not diseases at all, either inherited or otherwise. What they are is an attempt to soothe pain. Right. So, no, the more sensitive you are, the less has to happen for you to feel pain. Yes. And the analogy that I use is, let's say I tap myself on the shoulder. Well, there's no pain whatsoever. I'm wearing a jacket, a shirt, and I got my skin intact. But what if I had a burn here and my nerve endings were close to the surface? In other words, I was thin-skinned. And now I tap myself on the shoulder with the same force. Wow. So the more sensitive you are, the more pain you're going to have. The more pain you have, the more you're going to need to escape from that pain. Right. The numbers of ways we can escape from pain. One is by dissociating, tuning out. These kids tend to, a lot of them tend to be diagnosed with ADHD, not because they've inherited the disease, but because they're so sensitive. And when there was stress around them, they tuned out as a way of protecting themselves. Right. That tuning out gets programmed into the brain. These kids also have more of a need to escape into um, behaviors that uh, soothe the pain, such as internet and gaming and, and substances and so on. And so that there are two things going on. We have to look at the stresses in the environment, and we have to look at the sensitivity of the child. And sometimes parents, if we all did the right things, but they don't get us how sensitive their child was and even the little things that didn't happen that should have happened would have would have affected them. You know? Yeah. Oh, no, I was to say there was a beautiful description in the book that I can't remember who it was described them as orchids. And I just yeah. thought that was so perfect because they yeah. are so beautiful and, and delicate. But um, that's not cool, especially if you're a 14 year old boy or, yeah. you know, I, there's just it's it's not um, something that our society embraces and welcomes especially in young people i think maybe as they get older so i just thought that orchid description just to me it just like oh that's so perfect that was dr tom boyce who's a pediatrician and uh, used to be at, in vancouver where i live but now he's in california and he's got a book called orchids and dandelions i think it's where i was quite quoting him from but that same sensitivity dynamic applies to so many kids and um and it's challenging to know what to do with these sensitive kids because they react so much to whatever happens. Yes. And what do I do? But you get this kid that's overreacting. It's bewildering to parents who are not trained to understand that or or who themselves are threatened by the child's reactions or, or disturbed by it, you know. And what you have to realize is that the child has certain needs. If those needs are met, that kid's going to be okay. But in our society... The essential needs of children are just not met. Yeah. The more sensitive the child, the greater the impact. Absolutely. I wonder if I could, as a kind of a jumping off point, introduce you to a fictional but not fictional family. Um, sure. And because this is sort of the summation of the people I work with, of our ex personal experience, because I'd love to see it through your lens. So we have a pretty average North American family, mom, dad, both work full time, you know, high stress jobs, commuting, kids, three kids, 16 year old has recently started smoking pot every day, yeah. taking pills, uh, refusing school, mm -hmm. uh, angry, defiant, was diagnosed ADD in third grade, has ODD, shoplifting, won't engage, yeah. you know, just hands off, um, always been the sensitive kid always been a little bit more different, a little bit more difficult. Other kids are fine. Other kids are totally fine. Uh, parents can't think of any big trauma. You know, there was no, that they know of, there was nothing, nothing big. Um, and recently mom's quit her job because the stress has just gotten too much. She's too scared. She thinks her son's going to die of a fentanyl overdose. Yeah. And dad's kind of checked out, like you take, you know, mom, you figure this out. This is kind of the poster child family that I see in the work that I do. So I would love to get your thoughts on, on this family. Sure. Well, it's a very common scenario that you just depicted here. First of all, you told, you gave me a lot of information there. So first of all, let's begin with one observation. No two children grow up in the same family. 
this kid did not have the same mother and father as his siblings because he's got a different temperament. So he experiences them differently. Again, we're not talking about what the parents provide. We're talking about what the child receives. Big difference. And the sensitive child receives things differently. That's the first point. Second thing, it sounds like he's the oldest one. Is he, is he the eldest sibling? He's the oldest, yes. The first child doesn't receive the same parenting as the other children. We're not talking about whether the parents favor or love one child more than the other. We assume that they don't. But nevertheless, the first child comes along at a different stage of their parents' lives. I don't want to know how stressed was that mom during the pregnancy and how stressed was she was in the early years. Because I can tell you, the ADHD diagnosis tells me that she was stressed because that child's tuning out is a, is a defensive response. It's a way to protect yourself against stress. And children, there's a wonderful spiritual teacher, psychologist who said that um, when the mother is in pain, the child is in pain, you know, because the baby absorbs the stress of the mother and then they tune out. Hi, I'm taking a quick break because I want to let you know about the private online community I created and host for moms who have kids misusing drugs or alcohol. It's where I hang out between the episodes, so I wanted to share a little bit about it. This place is called The Stream, and it isn't a Facebook group. It's completely private, away from all social media sites, where you start to take care of yourself. Because through all of this, who is taking care of you? The Stream is a place where we teach the craft approach and skills to help you have better conversations and relationships, and we help you get as physically mentally and spiritually healthy as possible so that you can be even stronger for your son or daughter. You can join us free for two weeks to see if it's the right kind of support for you and learn more about all the benefits that you get as a member at thestreamcommunity.com and I'll see you there. Now let's get back to the conversation. The brain develops an interaction with the environment as I said earlier the brain circuits of attention and impulse regulation develop in interaction with the environment. And the, this is not, this is just brain science. And the essential condition for the healthy development of the brain is, is a consistently available, emotionally available, non-stressed, non-depressed, attuned parenting caregiver. Now, if the parents are both have high stress jobs, that already means that they're bringing their stresses home, whether, whether they want to or not. That's going to affect the child. That's the first point. So I don't know what were the mother's emotional states during pregnancy and in the early years of the child. And how long was she at home? Right. And how not long. <laughs> right? Yeah, not long in our, in our culture, right? And very often, not long. And then 25% of American women have to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth. That's a massive abandonment of the children. Yeah. The children can only experience that as abandonment. That's how they experience it. Right. Now, that's the first one. The second thing is, I don't know, what was the parents' relationship like? How much tension and stress was there between them? As there was between my wife and I, as I said earlier. That has an effect on the child. Then I'd want to know, at what did at some point... In, in, in the book that I co-wrote called Hold On to Your Kids, we point out that children have this need to attach to somebody, to belong to somebody. That's a biological, psychological, inescapable need because without that belonging, without that attachment relationship, the child can't live. But children's attachments are not nature dictated to belong to the parents because the parents may die. Now, as we evolved as human beings, we lived in small band hunter-gatherer groups where kids had lots of parents. Right. There was the biological parents were the primary parents, but the children had these parental relationship with lots of adults and elders. We've lost that. Yeah. When the child is away from the parents the whole day, as, it, as they often are in their society, their brains have this void of attachment. Well, the child's brain, the immature brain, can't handle an attachment void. They can't handle it when there's nobody there to attach to. So they're going to do what a duckling does when a mother duck is not there. 
when the mother when the when the duckling is born and there's the mother duck is there, the duckling will imprint on the mother duck and follow her around and learn from her and obey her and copy her and emulate her and so on. But if the mother duck is absent or goes missing, the duckling will imprint on a moving toy or dog or a horse. Mm -hmm. Our children are the same. When we don't see our kids the whole day, our kids will imprint on whoever's, whoever's around. Who's around for our kids most of the day in this culture? Other children. So our kids become peer-attached. And once they become peer-attached, their brain has to make a decision. Do I attach primarily to parents or to the peers? But given that they spend much more time with their peers in kindergartens and day schools and schools, for a lot of children, the peer attachment has become the primary attachment, which competes with and even undermines the parental attachment. Now the parents lose their power to parent because the power of parenting doesn't come from parent intimidating their kids or punishing their kids, as many parenting experts would have you do. In fact, we can talk about the toxic advice of the parenting industry. The parent's power comes from the child wanting to attach to the parent. And when the kid's attached to the peer group, they start resisting the parent. And then we diagnose them with this stupid thing called oppositional defiance disorder. I'm telling you, Brenda, there's no such thing as oppositional defiance disorder. Is it okay if I go on for a while? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I, I That's why I figured I'd introduce you to his family and then I could shut up and need to <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, let's take this diagnosis of ODD. Now, if I had a if my foot was broken, would it matter that I'm talking to you? to the fracture in my foot? Would it be just as broken if I was here by myself or if I was talking to you? Yeah. My foot, yeah. What if I had a flu? Would I have less flu because I was talking to you? No. Okay. But let's take this oppositional defiant disorder. Could I oppose somebody if I wasn't in a relationship with them? No. Yeah. I mean, if anybody doesn't understand what I'm talking about, I invite you to lock yourself in a room by yourself Make sure there's nobody there. Look under the bed, behind the curtains. Make sure you're alone and oppose somebody. Right. Now, the opposition, by definition, involves a relationship. Yes. Well, if opposition de 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 depends on a relationship, why are we diagnosing the child with a disorder? Why aren't we looking at the relationship with the adult world? And what these kids who are diagnosed with ODD, what's actually happened to them, they lost their primary relationship with the adults. Now they're no, looking, no longer looking to the adults for guidance and leadership. And when somebody's pushing on you to whom you're not looking for guidance and leadership, you're going to push back. And if you don't Absolutely. know what you're talking about, just raise your left hand, right, the right hand and raise your left hand, push with the one hand against the other, the other one will immediately push back. That's yeah. automatic resistance that we call counter will, opposing the will of the other. It's very natural. It's not a disorder. The problem with these ODD kids is that they lost the primary relationship with the adults and then they push back. And they don't have a disorder. They have a normal response to their relationships. Yeah. The ADD is a normal res response to stress when kids are stressed, when their brain is developing, they tune out. In other words, let's not diagnose disorders. Let's look at the relational conditions in which our children's personalities and our brains develop. And let's change those relationships and those contexts. I promise you, their brains will respond positively, as will they. We can get these kids back, but not if we focus on their behaviors, not if we look focused on their medical diagnoses, but if we actually look at their relational and emotional dynamics and we change our relationship to them, they're going to change in response. Right, which is so difficult to do with a very angry teenager, I have to say. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. But, yeah, but, but, but here's the thing. What's the alternative? Exactly. Because the exactly. alternative is you listen to all these people that tell you to practice tough love. And I'll tell you something. I've had so many people, after my book on addiction came out, tell me that they listened to the experts with the tough love and they lost their kids. Mm. There's, no tough, there's no tough love. There's either love or there's tough. There's nothing tough about love. 
Love is soft and it's tender and it's intimate and it's welcoming. The parents who are facing an angry child, they have to ask themselves, why is the child angry? No wonder humans become frustrated. As my core writer and Hold On To Your Kids, Gordon Neufeld says, frustration is the engine of aggression. Mm. If these kids are aggressive, it's because they're frustrated. When do we get frustrated? When our needs are not met. What is the primary need of the child? Attachment relationship with nurturing adults, mm. which means we're their best bet. It doesn't matter how angry they are with us. No, it's challenging because their anger triggers us. Yes. But let's look at the word trigger. It's a metaphor, isn't it? How big of the weapon, how big a part of the weapon does the trigger form? It's a very small. What else has to be there for that trigger to set off fireworks? Explosive ammunition, explosive, explosive charge, ammunition. We're carrying that explosive charge. We're carrying the ammunition. Now we could focus on the trigger, or we could say, what is the explosive material inside me? Mm. And I tell you, when my kid triggers me, or when anybody triggers me, I need to ask myself, what is the explosive material in here? And that's the and what that is is usually the imprint of my own childhood trauma that I haven't resolved yet. Yeah. So this is, the, I, I agree with you, this is very difficult work, but I ask you, what's the alternative? Exactly. It, there is none. And I think the other thing that, as, as we talk about this, that always comes to mind is the guilt, the parent guilt. And I know you're explicit in making sure to talk about the fact that you're not blaming parents. Um, so I'm in no, I'm in no I mean, I'm in no position to, because believe me, I've been to the parental guilt myself. Well, here's what I would ask you. Have you felt parental guilt? A hundred percent. Okay. Yes. Let me ask you this question. When in your own life have you not felt guilty? I, I feel guilty a lot. A lot. I ask you, when in your life have you not felt guilty? When I have did not you, did, felt Did your sense of guilt precede you having children? I don't think so. I no? never thought about that. I don't think so. Okay. All right. How are your parents' relationship with each other? Um, very harmonious. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was raised in a, a home with no conflict. No conflict. No conflict. That raises, that raises problems for me right away. Yes. It's difficult. C conflict is difficult for me as an adult because I didn't see it. Um, okay. And then when I had a child who, you know, really struggled and now I look back and see, you know, now everything's so clear, but he had a very traumatic childbirth. Okay. He had prolapse cord. So at the last minute you know, emergency um, operation, you know, thrown on a cold, hard metal yeah. tray, yeah. you know, Apgar of a two just, yeah. and then I couldn't, um, I couldn't walk for the first three months. And so his yeah. father took care of him, brought him to me to nurse and then took him back. And what was the emotional state when all that was happening? Oh, I was, I, I didn't think I was going to live. I was in so much pain. So he was going to pick up on all that. Yes. You know, you did nothing wrong, but he was going to pick up on all that. You know. Yeah. Now, I won't, I won't insist on this, but I would say that in in terms of your own childhood, let me ask you this question: When you did you ever feel sad, angry, or lonely as a child? Uh yeah. Who did you speak to? Our dog. Okay. We had if a German you, Shepherd. Okay. If your child felt sad, lonely, angry, who would you want them to speak to? To me. Okay. If you found out that your child was sad, lonely, angry, but didn't talk to you, how would you explain that? They didn't feel that I was the safe person to do that with. That was your childhood? Or so you just told me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So even in that home where your parents were harmonious and no conflict, you didn't feel safe? Yeah, not to talk about um, 
Yeah, not to talk about sad or scary things. But that's exactly when you need kids yeah. to talk to parents, isn't it? Like the, the first day that children are born, do any of them hold? Do any of them hold back and say, "Oh, I'm feeling hungry and upset, but I'm not going to bother mommy and daddy." Right. So something happened in your childhood. I'm saying, and we don't need to go into it, but I'm saying something happened in your childhood that made you feel that the world that that the parents weren't available for you to talk about some of the things that were most important to you and emotionally speaking. Yeah. That's a trauma. Right. You carry that trauma into your own parenting. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we wonder what goes wrong. Well, and something, by the way, happened to your parents. Otherwise, they would have created an environment where you did feel totally safe and welcome to express exact one of the emotional, one of the irreducible needs of children that I talk about in the myth of normal is the capacity to experience all our emotions, pain, anger, pain, anger, fear, grief, whatever it is. Not having that freedom, not having the welcome for that is traumatic for the child. I'm yeah. saying yeah. in our society, that's very, very common. And I don't point fingers at any parents because first of all, it's multi-generational just as is in your case or in my case. So that didn't be, there's a wonderful book called It Didn't Start With You by Mark Olin, who was about trauma. You know, who are you going to blame, Adam and Eve? You know? Right. How far back do we want to point the finger? The, the, the first amoeba, you know, I mean, you know. Right. Secondly, parents do their best. But their best is limited by their own development and trauma and circumstances. Yeah. And the culture that they live in. So the last thing I want to do is add to any sense. By the way, parental guilt is toxic for the child. As my children will tell you. Right. They told me, they're adults. Stop with the guilt already. Nobody wants to be seen as somebody else's mistake. Mm. My kids don't want to experience themselves as to the eyes of my guilt. Oh, yo, I screwed them up. They want to see as human beings with possibility and, and and capacity and talent and resilience, you know, right. but their own challenges. They don't want to be carrying the burden of my guilt about how I parented them. And you know what? So it took me a long time to get over that parental guilt, but I'm the last one to try and lay it on anybody else. But at the same time, we have to be aware. We have to be aware of what happened and of what goes on in this culture. Otherwise, we're not going to change anything. Well, yeah, I was going to say, if we if we don't look at that, then we can't then change how we interact with our kids. And and something that really stood out to me was the attachment and authenticity and that they're that they are like a team effort, right, that they go together. And I think as parents, we sometimes lean heavier on one or the other. But I, I really see in the in the kids of the parents that I work with, the authenticity piece of it in particular is so difficult because in this culture, um, we have, you know, my kid has to go to this college, they have to get into this school, they have to have this kind of a career. And so we we kind of wipe away their authenticity and say, mm -hmm. this is who you're going to be. This is how our family is. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that combination that's so important. Well, in the book, we quote this uh, um, episode or anecdote of somebody I, I know, uh, a mother yelling at their five-year-old son who's not doing their homework. Well, first of all, why does a five-year-old have homework anyway? You know, they're meant to be playing, not doing yes, homework. Play right. is much better for brain development and intellectual development than homework, by the way, if only we knew this. And when I say play, I don't mean with gadgets. I mean, free, creative, spontaneous play out there in nature. Yeah. But this poor mom is not yelling at her five-year-old saying, you know, you're not thinking of your academic future. And we say in the book, and the kid, if the, only the kid, you could yell back saying, and you're not thinking of my emotional well-being. <laughs> right. Um, so there's so much pressure on parents to put pressure on their kids. It begins very early. For example, we have a two-year-old who throws a tantrum. Which, by the way, I hate to tell you, but that's what two-year-olds do. When they get frustrated, what do I do as a 78-year-old when I get frustrated? 
My wife would tell you. <laughs> we'll get her on the podcast next. <laughs> you ask her, how does Gabor behave when he's frustrated? You know, I still have a tendency to veer towards the tantrum, although I'm much better at it. But a two-year-old has no, no self-regulation whatsoever. So when they're frustrated, there's something they want is not given to them. They just act it out. But then you listen to one of these misguided parenting experts that say, okay, time out. A timeout means, now why does a timeout work? A timeout works because the child's biggest need is the attachment relationship with the parent. Without that, there's no life for them. And they know that in their bones and in their hearts. Timeout means I'm going to temporarily withdraw from that attachment relationship because I don't like your behavior. I don't like your attitude. I don't like your emotion of anger. Well, not the child's brain, not the child because it's not conscious, but the child's brain has a desperate decision to make. Do I go for the attachment with my parent without which I can't live? Or do I go with my authentic feeling, which is anger? But if I go with my authentic feeling, I'm going to lose the attachment relationship because I'll be going to be banished. Well, in that tension between attachment and authenticity, authenticity will lose out every time. Mm -hmm. And what happens then is the child will disconnect from their emotions in order to belong to the family. And they will suppress their healthy anger, which sometimes will explode out of them, which is what you're seeing in this teenager that you described. It's like a volcano when you suppress it underground for so long, it just bubbles over and just you get this explosion this flow of lava hot lava like anger yeah. or if you repress it successfully completely you get a child who's depressed and is prone for autoimmune disease and all kinds of other physical disease later on yeah um, now in this culture we demand of so many people that they give up their authenticity in order to get the attached if you want to be accepted you have to give up who you are and that's pathological, both emotionally, mentally, and physically. So it's a, it's a tragic dilemma, as we say in this book. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be that way. There are ways of dealing with the child's anger that are creative and loving and accepting, and yet, which don't, are not permissive. We're not talking about letting kids do any old thing, break the window, hit their siblings, torment the dog, scream obscenities at us. We're not talking about that. We're talking about understanding where that anger is coming from, making room for the anger, allowing the child to move to, the child to move through it in a loving way, and then teaching other ways of being with their anger. There's ways to do that. It's not that difficult. But if we get triggered or if we listen to these parenting experts, we squash the child and we force them into this dilemma authenticity versus attachment yeah. well and that that brings up the the very uh, eye-opening concept of this suppression of emotions and especially when i was reading about uh, caregivers of children with chronic illness or caregivers of people with dementia and alzheimer's and the yeah. connection and the telomeres and i'm you'll have to explain telomeres because I, I don't know, but I know that you need them to be healthy. That was very enlightening because so many of us who are mothering or fathering these kids in particular, uh, I just, I'm thinking, what is what is the ripple effect that's going to be happening in our own bodies? Again, what we're dealing with is a problem of modern society. Um, there's a friend of mine, an American physician and psychiatrist who's from Lakota Sioux background, Louis Malmadrona, his name is. And Louis told me that in his Lakota tradition, when somebody got ill, it wasn't seen as an individual problem. It was seen as a community problem. Mm -hmm. And the attitude was, thank you. Your illness is manifesting some dysfunction imbalance in our whole community. Your healing is our healing. Wow. And so if there's a child who's ill, it's not just seen as the problem of the individual mother, it's seen as the problem of the community. Mm 
preemptive support. And in society, we're isolated, atomized, nuclearized, which means that the parenting or the caregiving role falls on individual people, often without support, and very often women. Why do women have 80% of autoimmune disease? Because they're the designated caregivers. They're the ones who are supposed to suppress their emotions to take care of everybody else. Yeah. Now, we know that chronic caregivers who do so without support, that stress or caring suppresses the immune system. Their wounds take longer to heal. They get more frequent colds. And the telomeres, which are chromosomal structures that mark chromosomal and cellular health, fray more fast, more rapidly. So mothers who are chronic, who have children who are chronically ill, their chromosomal aging is faster than that of other women their same age. Mm -hmm. which, which talks about the need for support. Now, if you look at when, when COVID, there was an article in the New York Times during COVID called Society's Shock Absorbers. And my son Daniel and, and I, who co-wrote this book, we took that title and made it the chapter of a book about women's health because women are society's shock observers. In this patriarchal culture, women are programmed to absorb not only their own stresses, but the stress of their spouses and of their children and even of their parents. Yeah. And that has an impact on the health of the women. For example, there was a study that looked at recovery after coronary bypass surgery in people under 50. Men recover much better than women do. Then I looked at the reason why. Men, when they recovered, they go back home and they get taken care of by their spouses. Women, when they go back home, they resume their caregiving role. Right. You know? Yes. What do Can we I expect? make you a sandwich while I'm <laughs> in the bed? <laughs> yes. So in the 1930s, the incidence of multiple sclerosis, for example, which is an autoimmune disease, the immune system turning against the body, the gender ratio was one to one. Now it's three and a half women to every man. Why? Because women are doing what they've always done in this culture, take care of the emotional needs of everybody, but now they also have to go out there and make a living. And because of the nuclearization, the atomization of society, there's less communal support. So you double the stress and you take away the support. Now you have three times the rate of multiple sclerosis in women than you do in men. It's not an accident and it's not nothing to do with genetics. It's got to do with the acculturated, socially expected caregiving role of women. And that's why I call it a toxic culture. It creates conditions that make people sick. You know, the relationships and the values and how we raise children, how we gestate children, how we give birth to children, the parenting advice that people get, the way the schools are organized, they could be all designed to impose stress on people because they do. Mm -hmm. And then this is then the problem. So these parents that you deal with, with the kids who are in trouble, I would say to them, first of all, don't blame yourself because you did your best. But look at the actual conditions. Look at your own childhood history. Look at how well you learned to take care of yourself. Look at how, like you, who did you have to talk to? How attuned were you with your very sensitive child needs? How stressed were you? What was your relationship like? What's going on right now? And what pain is your child trying to escape? Because my my mantra on addiction is not why the addiction but why the pain why the pain and there's always pain underneath every addiction yeah so you mentioned my book in the realm of hungry ghosts those that i i tell you this this is almost incredible to believe but i've had as, as one example this is only one example i was in san francisco coming out of an elevator this man rushes up to me in the lobby and wants, can I give you a hug? And I said, sure, why? He says, my son died of an overdose. And until I read your book, I didn't understand what happened. Mm -hmm. Now, in this book, I point out that the basis of addiction is childhood stress and trauma. 
So to have a parent who lost a child, and I said, I'm surprised you would say that to me because my message is not easy for parents to hear. He said, because I finally understood. And I understood how multi-generational it was. At least I knew what had happened. And that was such a relief. He said, well, I'm saying to people, don't blame yourself. Not for a moment. Or if you notice that self-blaming, deal with it. But for God's sakes, look at the environment. And families that are dealing with an addicted family member, there's three things that they can do. Two of them are sensible. One is insane. It's perfectly valid for a parent. I don't recommend it. And most parents don't want to do this. But if you want to say to a teenage child or an older child, your addiction is too painful to me. I'm not going to blame you for it because I know that you are trying to soothe some pain. And I'm not going to blame you for that, but it's too painful for me to be around. I can't handle it. I'm sorry. I'm going to withdraw. That's that's loving. It's also very honest. But it's totally understandable. Yeah. Or you can say, your addiction is your attempt to soothe some pain. I get that. That pain didn't originate with you. Didn't originate with me either. It's multi-generational. It's environmental. But that means that you're the canary in the mine. You're that sensitive individual who's downloading the pain of the whole family system. But it's not your pain alone. It's all of our pain. And we're all going to go to work to heal our trauma as a family. And you are welcome to join us. And if you're not ready, then you won't. We'll still love and accept you. But we're going to do the work anyway. Mm. That's a beautiful intervention. The third option, which is I'm going to be in your life and cajole you and threaten you and badger you and beg you and, and, and beseech you to be different than who we are. That's what's called codependence. It means that my emotional state depends on your being okay. Yeah. That's still making the child responsible for how the parent feels. That's insanity. And you know what it's going to get? It's going to get resistance. The child's going to experience that as a pressure, and they're going to push back. Even if you're trying to push them in the right direction, which you are, of course. Right. But how do we spend, how do we, any of us respond to being pushed? You push, push back. back. <laughs> you push back. You push back. That's all you're going to get. So the, the last option, drop it. And as for tough love, don't even think about it. Right. As I said earlier, there's love or there's tough but there's no tough love. Yeah. I wonder who who is doing this well, either as a society, as a community. Is there anybody who's doing this well that you see from your experience that is supporting parents in the way that they need to be supported so that they can then be there for their kids, so, you know, so that that cycle is broken? Who's doing I, don't, I don't see examples too much in this culture. I just don't. I see a lot of misinformation, misunderstanding. Um, who used to do it well were indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Believed in what they call restorative justice and the communal circle. But they've been so traumatized and so abused in Canada. Yeah. The, highest rates of the highest rates of addiction and child suicide and violence or amongst our First Nations communities because of the colonial oppression, genocidal torment of their children. So, But in their traditions, there still lives an echo of this communal approach to parenting and this communal approach to, um, to what we call pathology. So we have a lot to learn from them. Yeah. Uh, who's doing it well? I wish I could tell you. Well, we'll have to stay tuned um, on that one, but I think it's a good, it's just a good um, framework for us to think about. And I liked your three points because sometimes we need somebody to break it down like that to say, there are many ways that you could approach this and you could, and you could um, start to work on this. 
and talking with our kids about how it isn't, you know, they aren't a bad person because they think that's what that's what our default is, is yeah. can't you see what this is doing to our family? Can't you see what this is doing to all of that, which to date, I've never had anybody say, oh, yeah, my child responded really well to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the children would just—that's an enormous pressure to put on the child. The child is just man. The child is just manifesting the family. That's all they're doing. I have to tell you that I've had so many parents tell me that my book on ADHD, "Scattered Minds," is the Canadian and British title. Um, it's been published in the states with the title "Scattered," but I much prefer I much prefer the yes. British Canadian title. It saved their lives. Yes. Because they, because instead of pathologizing the child, pathologizing the child, they learned how to look at the whole family context. Yes. The best letter I ever received, and I quote this in the myth of normal, was from a mother of a four-year-old. Maybe you remember this. She's uh, I got this letter saying thank you uh, because I have this four-year-old beautiful daughter because of you. And uh, so I read the email and it says my husband used to be an alcoholic, and he used to believe that it was a genetic disease. And he didn't want to pass on the gene to any child, so he had no children. Until I was 44, on the verge of my the last years of my childbearing era, and I reread your book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and he realized it wasn't genetics at all. It was trauma, his childhood trauma. And so thanks to you, we have a four-year-old child. And I thought, I had, so to, I had to laugh because I've been thanked for saving people's lives before. But as they say in the book, I've never been thankful causing one yet long distance that is right right yeah. <laughs> that's so. that's such a great story that's such a great story and and what i also want to offer to people who are listening is there are ways that you give to start healing and so there's the four a's that promote healing that i know we don't have time to get into now but what i just want to make sure and tell people is that this is not like you get through the book and you're just like oh there are there are such great tools that you give to start working through that. Just the critical looking at ourselves. Yeah. Well, the self, the self loathing, the self criticism, the uh, all the burden of the past. You yeah. Know? And actually, they we have more chapters on healing than we have on anything else in the whole book. So it. it yeah, it's beautiful. It's it's such beautiful work and so there's um it's not it's not that you get to the end and just are like well now what do i do there's some very concrete things that we can do compassionate inquiry that's what i was trying yeah, to that was right. what i was looking for uh, that we can do with ourselves and can can our kids do that as well you know it depends how mature the child is and how motivated they are uh, to actually take on the work of their own transformation I would say that the most important thing is the most important work that any of us will ever do on behalf of our children is our own healing because we'll approach them so differently and there'll be such a burden off their shoulders. Right. For those listeners who are parents of younger children or children into early adolescence or adolescence, I highly recommend the book Hold On to Your Kids. That's been published in 30 languages. We have so much feedback on that book as well as there's a huge link between ADHD and addiction, ADD and addiction, and not only because they begin with the same three letters, but because the same dynamics that cause the tuning out also lead to the self-soothing. So ADD is a major risk factor for addiction. So a lot of parents have told me how much difference that book has made in their lives. Honestly, I'm not trying to sell, well, I'm trying to sell books, but not, not as a merchant, but because right. I wrote this book because for my own experience and my own learning, this is what I'm going to tell the world, that there's a different way of looking at it that's much more positive and much more proactive than just trying to respond to symptoms and diseases. Yeah. Well, I know I need to let you go. You probably have 5,000 other interviews to do, but I appreciate so much the time, the insights for these parents who are really struggling, and we will await maybe another book, or is this your... Is this okay, your... So my son, Daniel and I, with whom I wrote this book, I'm the main author, but the next one is going to be 50-50. And oh. it's going to be called Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Adult Children and Their Parents. Wow. All right. And that's actually a workshop that we're doing at Omega and at the end of October. We've given that workshop multiple times. It's a powerful workshop. It's for adult kids and their parents. 
And those of you that want to watch it, just Google Daniel and Gabor Mate 2016. Okay. And and you'll see it's been seen by about close to 400,000 people. We talk about this whole idea of the parent-child reunion when the child is an adult. It's never too late. Awesome. All right. Hello again. I will yeah. make sure and put links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Best of luck on your your launch and everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for your work. Wonderful to meet you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. Okay, that is it for today. If you would like to get the show notes for this episode, you can go to brendazane.com forward slash podcast. All of the episodes are listed there, and you can also find curated playlists there. So that's very helpful. You might also want to download a free ebook I wrote. It's called Hindsight, Three Things I Wish I Knew When My Son Was Misusing Drugs. It'll give you some insight as to why your son or daughter might be doing what they are. And importantly, it gives you tips on how to cope and how to be more healthy through this rough time. You can grab that free from brendazane.com forward slash hindsight. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. And I hope that these episodes are helping you stay strong and be very, very good to yourself. And I will meet you right back here next week.